lot of folks out on vacation today, the way it looks, but that's okay, isn't it? Can't blame anybody for that. Well, somebody lock the door because we're going to talk about repentance. <laughs> Actually, what I want to focus on, I don't want this to be a hammer blow. I want, to, to, I want us to see by the time we're done the true, genuine blessings of repentance and the blessings that repentance bring. It, it is a serious subject. It is serious business. But yet, at the end of it, there's a blessing that comes from repentance that we all need to take advantage of, that we all need active in our, in our spiritual lives. Now, I don't know how it was for you growing up. I don't know what church you attended. I don't know what denomination you came out of. When I growing, grew up, a lot of message about repentance, and perhaps it was just my limited understanding of the subject, and I mean no disrespect to anyone who ever gave a message on repentance, but like I said, it kind of felt like being hit over the head with a heavy object. It wasn't pleasant. It wasn't enjoyable. Uh, there was nothing fun about it. Uh, sometimes the message felt more like you were being scolded than encouraged. Some of the deliveries on repentance were quite harsh from some of the men that used to come through. It was like the motivation to get you to repent was fear rather than out of a, out of a deep relationship with the Lord. But it worked. It worked well, especially on a young man. But I don't think a relationship built on fear is a solid relationship. I don't think that's a good foundation for a relationship is fear. I can remember Sunday night, usually um, just the way we did it back then, not right, not wrong, not anything about how we do things now. Most of our Sunday night, Wednesday night services would end with us coming around the altar to close the service. We might be there for five minutes. We might be there for 45 minutes, depending on how things went. Usually we would come to the altar. And I remember those night services when an invitation would be given. And I remember coming to the altar several times. Everybody just went, okay? But a lot of times, I don't remember coming to the altar because I wanted to draw closer to God. I don't remember coming to the altar because I wanted to strengthen my relationship with the Lord, just spend some time in fellowship with Him. I remember coming a lot of times because I was afraid. I was afraid because maybe I got an argument on the playground with one of my friends and called him a bad name. I was afraid because I heard my uncle swear once and I decided I wanted to try it because it sounded like fun. And I had to get up there and take care of that. I was afraid that if I died before I got to the altar, I might not go to heaven. Again, my limited understanding. I'm not saying that anyone put that in me. I'm saying this was my understanding at the time. Most of my trips to the altar were out of fear. Now, those are ridiculous concepts. I realize that now. But this was my understanding of how it worked back then. But it's a tough way to live. And it's a tough way for a kid to grow up and try and serve the Lord out of fear. I'm not talking about the fear of the Lord. That's a totally different subject. I'm talking about living in fear of the Lord, living in fear that God's going to get you if he sees you doing something and you don't make it right for him. Now, my mom had it a lot worse growing up. The particular church she grew up in, um, a lot was said about how you look, how you, you know, what you wear, how you dress, and so forth. If my mom, as a child, would dare wear a pair of pants to school, and not put a skirt over the top of it, and someone from church saw her and her friends going to school, that way, come the next Sunday morning, they would be called out from the congregation, made to set up in the front row of the church, and they would have to endure a blistering sermon about why women wear dresses and not slacks. That's, even, that's a lot tougher than I had it. But that kind of thinking did exist. Now today, we have some segments of the church who don't want to talk about repentance anymore. Repentance has been marginalized. It's been reduced in importance. 
Repentance perhaps to them is necessary at your conversion, but God's grace covers everything else for the rest of your Christian walk. Repentance has been eliminated because we don't want to offend anyone. We don't want to drive people away. We want a nice full building, so we don't want to talk about things like sin and repentance. Once a church stops talking about, about sin, repentance is probably going to be the next casualty, casualty that they stop talking about. But repentance is not something to be set on the shelf. It's not something that's outdated. It's not useless because we now have a better understanding of God's love. Repentance is not a brick that we add to the wall of our life in Christ. Repentance is a stone that we place in the foundation of our walk with Christ and then build our Christian life upon that foundation. We lay a foundation of repentance. We lay a foundation of salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We lay a foundation on our belief in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then we build our Christian walk on that solid foundation. Repentance is one of those stones that we put in that foundation. Repentance is not a one-time experience when we get saved, but it must be applied all through our Christian walk whenever necessary. Repentance was an important message of John the Baptist. Repentance was an important message in the preaching of Jesus, and it was an important message in the directions Jesus left before his ascension back to heaven. The message John the Baptist gave to prepare the world for the coming of Jesus was repentance. Matthew 3.2 says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The message Jesus proclaimed is necessary for entering the kingdom of heaven was repentance. Matthew 4.17, Jesus said, From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The message the disciples carried wherever they went was a message of repentance. In Mark 6.12, And they went out and preached that men should repent. The call that went out in the first sermon after the outpouring of the Spirit was repentance. Acts 2.38, Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of your sins. Repentance is not a negative thing. Repentance is agreeing with God. God has commanded repentance. In Acts 17.30, it says He commands all people everywhere to repent. Repentance is necessary for forgiveness. Acts 3.19, repent and then turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. Repentance leads to life. Acts 11.18, so then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Repentance brings us forgiveness. It brings cleansing. It allows us to walk in the life that Christ has made available to us. I thought it was interesting, the word repent that we see in the King James Version all the time. As I looked up these verses, and I began to look in the New Living Translation, the word repent in Matthew 3, 2, it says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is, is at hand. The word repent in the Living Translation is translated as, turn from your sins and turn to God. The word repent in Matthew 4.17 is translated, turn from your sins and turn to God. The word repent in Acts 2.38, turn from your sins and turn to God. The word repent in Acts 3.19, turn from your sins and turn to God. What a great definition of repentance. To turn from sin and to turn to God. To repent means to change one's mind, thought, purpose, or view regarding a matter. It refers to a change in heart and attitude, which results in a new direction for the entire life. Repentance involves giving up our stubborn will. Charles Finney said in part about repentance that it was a thorough and hearty abandonment of all excuses and apologies for sin. That's real common. 
when people sin, when we sin, we have excuses, we have reasons why. Repentance, he said, is an abandonment of all excuses and apologies for sin. Oswald Chambers writes that repentance describes the deep and radical change whereby a sinner turns from the idols of self and sin and turns to God. There's that turn thing again. That's really what repentance is. It's turning away from something towards something else. Now, repentance is not worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is simply being sorry for getting caught. In many cases, people who have, you know, we've seen in the news committed these acts and got caught by them. Were they given, put in the same circumstance again with a guarantee they wouldn't get caught? They'd probably repeat the same offense. That's worldly sorrow. That's not repentance. Repentance is not reformation. Reformation is simply trying to turn over a new leaf without any real change of heart. Repentance is not being religious. The Pharisees maintained a form of religion but never experienced true, genuine repentance or the power of repentance. Repentance is not mental faith where we accept a creed or doctrine without any real heart change. All of these things, worldly sorrow, reformation, being religious, mental faith, they all are lacking the influence of the Holy Spirit. That's what's needed in true repentance, the influence of the Holy Spirit. That's what's necessary for us to put off our pride in nature and truly repent. Now, confession of sin also is not repentance. Saul confessed his sin to Samuel, but there was no real repentance in his life, was there? As we see in the book of uh, 1 Samuel. Repentance is turning from sin, and it's turning to God. Repentance is necessary because since the fall of man, there's this inborn desire in us to go our own way and to rebel against the right ways of God. Proverbs 14.12 says, There's a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. I don't understand... I know why it is, but it's so hard to comprehend. We know what's right. We know what's good. We know what the Lord wants. And yet something can come in our mind, and we can sit and have an argument with ourselves about whether this is okay or not, and whether this is right or not. Why is that? It makes no sense when we know what's right, and we have the Spirit in us to show us what's right and direct us in the right way, and yet we'll have these conversations. We'll have these arguments with ourselves. We have these thoughts. We'll have these times sometimes of trying to justify why this would be all right. But it's not all right. Repentance is necessary because every one of us has erred from the right ways of God. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Repentance is necessary because in ourselves we do not have the power to live a life that's pleasing to God. Repentance is necessary for right relationship with God. When sin disrupts that relationship, repentance is what restores that relationship. We want to look today at how this transpired in an incident in the life of David. Most of us are aware, I think, of the story, 2 Samuel, of David's uh, sin and in his confrontation with the prophet Nathan. Now, remember, I said I didn't want to talk about repentance today as a hammer blow, or use it as a hammer, but I wanted to focus on its blessings. This is what we see in this excerpt, I believe, from David's life. Now, I, I've heard this story taught, as I said in the past. I've heard it preached on with the emphasis on David's sin and David's failures. And how could David, the anointed king of Israel, a man after God's own heart, how could he fail so miserably? I don't want that to be the focus today. I want to focus on the fact that in this story of David, and regardless of how the story starts, we look at how the story ends, and I want to focus on the fact that this example from David's life is a story about second chances. 
It's a story about God's mercy. It's about coming clean and not trying to hide our sins from God. It's about the restoration that's possible through true, genuine repentance. David's experience in his subsequent prayer in Psalm 51 teaches how to come before God. Despite his great sin, David came to God believing that forgiveness and cleansing were available to him. And his sin was great. I know sin is sin, but this instance was not stealing a pack of gum out of Grandma's cupboard and not telling her. This was pretty serious. David based his hope on God's character. David knew that God was gracious. He knew that God was merciful. He knew that God was faithful. He knew that God was full of compassion. He knew that God was loving. David came to the Lord seeking for forgiveness and received forgiveness. In 2 Samuel 12, 13, Nathan says to David, the Lord has forgiven you. So he did receive forgiveness. You might call this, if you will, a pre-Calvary glimpse of post-Calvary grace, what transpired here in the life of David. A pre-Calvary glimpse of post-Calvary grace. David knew God's character, and David knew God's record. This is why we can repent and receive forgiveness for our sins. Not because we deserve it, but because of God's great love for us. Now as we get back to David, you'll find the story in 2 Samuel chapter 11. The Bible says he's walking on the roof of the palace one day, and he's looking over the city. He spots this beautiful woman down below him. So he sends someone to inquire about her to find out who she is. The person comes back and tells him who she is. He brings her to the palace, winds up having an affair with her. The woman finds out later that she's pregnant. She tells David. He begins to try and find a way to cover it up. He begins to try to find a way to hide it so no one will find out. David sends for her husband Uriah who was out fighting with the army. Twice he tries to get Uriah to go home and be with his wife. Twice David's plans fail. So now he goes to the next step. David sends a messenger to the commander of the army telling him to put Uriah on the front line and then pull back so that he'll be killed. Uriah dies. David marries Bathsheba. Bathsheba gives birth to a son. And they live happily ever after, right? Not at all. In chapter 12, now all this happens with Uriah and Bathsheba. A whole year has passed here after the birth of the child. A year has passed. 2 Samuel chapter 12 says, So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but a little lamb he had worked hard to buy. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man. But instead of killing a lamb from his own flocks for food, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and served it to his guest. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you his house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. 
And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah and stolen his wife. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. One year later, someone looks you in the eye and says, you've murdered Uriah and you stole his wife. Might be the first time in that whole year period that David actually looked at that in that context. Now over this year period, David had become so insensitive to his own sins, I don't think he even realized that he was the bad guy in Nathan's story. It was almost like he set him up, like he tricked him. When Nathan says, you are the man, David confesses his sins. Nathan says that the Lord has forgiven him, but the child still dies. All of this tragedy, everything that transpired here over this period of time, a man loses his life, a woman loses her husband, a couple lose their son, and a king damages his relationship with his God. All of this tragedy over one unchecked thought. One thought led to all of this taking place. If people could taste the bitterness of the results of sin first and the pleasure of it last, I think there'd be a lot less sin in the world. Because unfortunately, it can be pleasurable. It is pleasurable sometimes. That's, I think, maybe we talked before, why do we feel this way? Maybe that's the draw, because there is pleasure to it. Maybe that's why we'll have those conversations and those arguments with ourselves over this being all right. There is pleasure in sin, but there's also a bitterness that comes after you experience the pleasure. If we could taste the bitterness of the results of sin first, I think there'd be a lot less sin in the world. If David, as he stood on that balcony, he, he rose from his nap, and he's walking on the roof, and he's looking down over the city, and the moment he saw that beautiful woman down there, if he could have just got a glimpse of the future from that balcony, if there had just been some way, if he could have felt, just for an instant, the pain of that arrow as it entered Uriah's body and took his life, if he could have just felt the grief for a few seconds even, that Bathsheba felt when she learned that her husband had died. If he could have experienced just for a moment the shame of Nathan pointing his finger in his face and saying, you're the man that took that lamb from the poor man when you were a rich man. If he could have just tasted for a few seconds the grief of losing his son, he never would have sent someone to find out who that woman was. He'd have looked down, he'd have walked away, and none of this would have happened. But it doesn't work that way, does it? So now he finds himself a year later at a place where he needs to repent. And this great prayer comes as a result of his repentance. In Psalms chapter 51, David says, Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion. Blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my shameful deeds. They haunt me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the heart, so you can teach me to be wise in my inmost being. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me, now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. 
Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence, and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me again the joy of your salvation, and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to sinners, and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that I may praise you. What a prayer. This don't sound like a guy that's trying to cover something up anymore, does it? Sounds like someone who's truly repented, someone who's found forgiveness. He says first in verse 51, Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion. Blot out the stain of my sins, wash me clean from my guilt, purify me from my sin. David begins by asking for mercy. He didn't use his position as God's anointed to bargain with God. Now this is not, again, this is not the prayer of a proud king. If you read this, I don't think you'd ever speculate that this was written by the king of Israel, by the Lord's anointed, by a man after God's own heart. This is not the prayer of a proud king, but of a humble, broken man. This is a man who has run head on into the realization of what he's done. This is a man who's become aware suddenly because of the prophet coming to visit him of exactly what he'd done and exactly of how much pain and how much trouble he caused in people's life. This is a man more broken, I think, than Peter even was. We read the account of Peter. Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Peter denies Jesus in the one account for the third time. The rooster crows. He looks up, looks right in the eyes of Jesus, and he realizes what he's done. And the Bible says he went out and wept bitterly. Peter was broken in that moment when he realized he'd denied knowing the Lord. But think about it. This all transpired within a period of a few hours in Peter's life. This in David's life had been going on for over a year. I think David was a more broken man in this instance, in his time of repentance, than Peter was when he realized that he denied the Lord. So this is a broken man. This is a humble man, not a proud man. David didn't come to God with any excuses. The time for excuses was past. He knew what he'd done. So we're not going to do that anymore. He came with a heart of repentance. This too is how we must come before the Lord with a heart of repentance. We can't come with excuses. We can't say we made mistakes. We have to come and just repent. Lord, I've done this. I've committed this sin. The only reason we can come to God is because of who He is. The only reason we can come to Him is because He created the way by which we come to Him. That's how we come. In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, it says, God saved you by His special favor when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. We're a new creation. We're a brand new man, that song we used to sing says. Old things have passed away. I've been born again. More than a conqueror. That's who I am. I'm a new creation. I'm a brand new man. David was well on his way in his repentance here to becoming a new man to becoming a new creation in Christ again, to having things in his life that had been damaged and destroyed restored to him because of his, because of his attitude and repentance. No wonder we attach the word amazing to God's grace. Amazing doesn't do it justice. We don't have a word in the English language to really define grace, but I think amazing is probably about the best one we've got. Can the word red really tell you everything about a rose? Probably not. 
but amazing is probably the closest thing we have to describe God's grace. His amazing grace. David says, have mercy on me, O God. He says, wash me clean, purify me. When Nathan tells the story of the rich man taking from the poor man, then says to David, you are the man. David finally sees his actions for what they are. Now I've always wondered, did Nathan, as he tells this story, and then David goes on his rant, and he's angry about the rich man stealing from the poor man, not realizing that Nathan's talking about him. Did Nathan become so fed up where he didn't even care anymore if he lost his own life, did he just throw a finger out and just scream at David, you're the man! You know, could he just not take it anymore? Did Nathan just sit there maybe and let David go on with his rant and rave? And then when David finally stopped, did Nathan just calmly say, you're the man. You're the one. You're the rich man who took from the poor man. Whatever it was, it really had an effect on David. It broke David. He caused him to see what he'd done for what it really was. He knew that he damaged his relationship with God. And in the realization of his sin and of that damage, he cries out for forgiveness. In verse 3, does anyone know where the other half of this pulpit went? Okay. It's so much easier when it's all up here. Verse 3 of Psalms 51 says, For I recognize my shameful deeds. They haunt me day and night. The King James says, for I acknowledge my transgressions. David put the blame squarely where it belonged. It wasn't anyone else's fault. He put the blame right on his own shoulders. Verse 4 says, against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. Now David had served the Lord for many years. David had worshipped the Lord. David danced before the Lord. David had an intimate relationship with the Lord. He was even called a man after God's own heart. But he still fell. It can happen to any of us. None of us are immune. None of us are too good or too spiritual to have something like this happen to us. It can happen to any one of us. But thank God today that through the blood of Jesus Christ we can deal with it, we can get rid of it, and we can move on. And we can be restored to right relationship with God. Amen? Amen. All right, verse 5. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the heart, so you can teach me to be wise in my inmost being. Each of us needs wisdom. We need to apply wisdom to keep our hearts closed to anything that could creep in and damage our relationship with God. David did not apply wisdom in this situation. He allowed an enemy to sneak in and cause a disruption in his relationship with God. And all because of a thought. All this pain and grief because he entertained a wrong thought. Now the enemy didn't come to David as he stood on that balcony and he looked down and sees Bathsheba there. The enemy didn't come to him and say, hey, why don't you sleep with her and murder her husband? He didn't do that. He said, wow, look at her. You should find out who that is. So David says, okay, send someone to find out who she is. They come back, report to him, and then he says, you should invite her up here. That's all he needed to do. David took care of the rest by himself. He didn't need any other encouragement. That thought had already been planted. He maybe wrestled with the thought, maybe he didn't, we don't know. But he went ahead and acted on those thoughts that had been placed in his mind. And that led to all the rest. That was all the enemy had to do, is put that one subtle thought in and get him thinking about it and considering it. And his battle was lost right there. 
Now, fortunately, he came to see his sin for what it was, and he recognized his need for forgiveness and cleansing. In verse 7, David says, Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. David didn't want a parole here. David wanted to be forgiven. David wanted the slate wiped clean. David wanted this thing to be removed as far from memory as possible. Notice David acknowledges that it was his sin. Notice the use of I, the words I and my in verse 1 through 4. David acknowledges that his action was sin. David confesses and repents of his sin. We see a change of heart and mind in David here. We see a change in attitude. He's turned from his sin and he's turned to God, which is what repentance is. In verse 8 of chapter 51, it says, Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. David wanted the, the, the stain of his sin washed away, but he wanted more than just a cleansing. David wanted and needed restoration. Over this period of time, there were obviously things in David's life, and more specifically things in his walk with the Lord that had been damaged. He couldn't have possibly been on the same level with the Lord as he was before this. So these things had been damaged. Maybe slowly, subtly, maybe he didn't even notice. But the point where this first happened to the point where Nathan pointed out his sin, you know there was damage to that relationship. And David in his repentance and in his broken state of mind and spirit knew this. And he suddenly realized what had been lost. He realized what he'd been missing for the last year. He realized the void that this sin had created in his life, and he wanted those things restored. He wanted those aspects of his relationship with the Lord restored to him again. It's not enough for the vessel to be emptied and cleansed from sin. The empty vessel needs to be filled with the goodness and the power of God so that that life can continue to worship and praise the Creator. And this is the point I want to make this morning. I'll ask uh, Karen in here. Well, if somebody can find her, have them come this morning if you would. This is the point I wanted to get to this morning. Like I said, I don't want this to be a hammer blow to the head. But the point I want to make, the point I want you to see today about repentance is the blessing aspect of it and the restoration aspect of it. Repentance not only brings forgiveness of sins and thank God for forgiveness of sins, but repentance doesn't only bring forgiveness of sins. Repentance paves the way for restoration of everything that sin has destroyed in our life. It paves the way for the restoration of those things. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how bad you think you are. If you'll confess your sins, the Bible says, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because of His great love for us, because of His amazing grace. If we repent, God will forgive us our sins. He will restore what has been lost. Now what would David want? What did David want? David wanted a new creation. In verse 10, it says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. David wanted a new creation. wanted his heart changed. He wanted his heart to be made clean. Reformation wasn't good enough for David. David needed a clean heart. He needed a new creation to take the place of sin's ruins. David wanted a right spirit. He said, renew in me, renew a right spirit within me. This would seem to indicate that David possessed a right spirit. 
before this sin took place. He was asking the Lord to renew something that had been damaged, to renew something in him that maybe didn't exist anymore. Renew a right spirit within me. David wanted the closeness of God's presence. In verse 11, he said, don't banish me from your presence. To obtain and maintain spiritual victory, we can't do it alone. We need God's help. We need the presence of the Lord active in our life. Not only do we need the presence of the Lord in our life, we need to put ourselves in a position where we find ourselves in the presence of the Lord, where he can influence, where he can speak to us. If the, you know, the enemy spoke to David in this situation, the Spirit of the Lord can speak to us and keep us out of those situations. That's why we need to be in the presence of the Lord. The presence of the Lord is not something to run to in a time of trouble. It's not something where we go when we have a need or when someone we know is sick or we, or we can't see our way clear on a situation in life. The presence of the Lord is a place where his people need to dwell. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge, my fortress, my God. In Him will I put my trust. We need to dwell in the presence of the Lord. David wanted the closeness of God's presence. David wanted the continued presence of the Holy Spirit. He said, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Now we see in the account of Saul in 1 Samuel where Saul had disobeyed the word of the Lord. He was told to destroy everything. And Saul spared the king and he spared the best animals of the flock for sacrifice. And as Samuel pointed out his heir to him, Saul said, I have sinned. He confessed his sin. But there was no real repentance in the life of Saul. And as a result, we see in a later chapter, the Bible says that the spirit of the Lord had left Saul. David didn't want this. He knew this was possible, but he didn't want it. He wanted the continued presence of the Holy Spirit. So he said, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. He wanted the Spirit to be his constant companion. David wanted the joy of salvation, and he wanted a free-willing spirit again. He says, restore to me again the joy of your salvation, and make me willing to obey you. David wanted to be a servant. In verse 13, he said, then I will teach your ways to sinners, and they will return to you. David wanted to teach people. David wanted to show people. Maybe teach them people who are in a similar situation. Maybe David could say, hey, this is my experience. This is what happened to me. And the Lord was faithful. And the Lord brought me through it. He forgave me. He cleansed me. He restored everything back to me. David also wanted to worship. Verse 15, he said, Unseal my lips, O Lord, that I may praise you. Sin closes our mouth and silences worship. Forgiveness and cleansing cause our mouth to be open. Causes us to sing of God's goodness and mercy. Now, although David's sin was great, he came to God with a broken spirit. He came to God with a broken and contrite heart. God responded to his cry. He cleansed him. He forgave him. He restored him. And he'll do the same for us. New creation. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. They dealt with David personally. The next six dealt with aspects of David's relationship with God. The closeness of God's presence, the continued presence of the Holy Spirit, the joy of salvation, a free-willing spirit, to be a servant and to worship. Why did he put them in that order? Why did he deal with the two of himself first and then six others afterwards dealt with his relationship to God? It's because he first needed the vessel cleansed before the vessel could be filled. 
the vessel needs to first be cleansed before God can put his good things into the vessel. Repentance will bring forgiveness and cleansing to you so that God can then fill you. He'll cleanse the vessel, then he'll fill the vessel. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you today. Thank you for the avenue of repentance, Lord. Thank you in your wisdom and your love for us. You created this avenue. I just pray that we take that block, Lord, that's in the foundation. Take it out when we need it, Lord. Restore it into our walk with you. Father, I pray that we'd use it in the right and proper way. Without excuses, Lord. But that we just come with a heart of repentance. That we'd come humbly before your throne if we sin, Lord. Ask you to forgive us. Receive your forgiveness and cleansing. And that you'd restore to us, Lord God, anything that's been damaged. Lord, maybe it's been years, Father. I don't know. I don't know everyone's situation here. But if it's been years since there's been true repentance in a life, Lord God, I just pray that you'd help those people and help that person, Lord, to truly repent before you. And as David, have their walk with you completely and totally restored. We thank you for it. We give you praise in Jesus' name. All the people said amen.